Welcome back to Parashat Beha'alotcha. My name is Ariban Lyman Hanavi. I'm the author of the commentary. We have been talking about the menorah. We've been talking about Isaiah chapter 11, verses 1 through 5, as well as chapter 61, the first few verses there. We've uh, brought in a few passages or a few uh, verses from the, cha- uh, the book of Luke. We looked at the book of Revelation, and what we found out is that Yeshua is likened to the menorah in the sense that he, of course, receives his anointing by the oil of the Spirit, the same way that we are to receive our anointing. But also, we found that there is a pattern of seven when it comes to Yeshua being the uh, uh, receiving the um, anointing of the Spirit and the Spirit of God resting upon him. And um, the menorah is laid out in a fashion or a pattern of seven where we have a central shaft with... Uh, Three pairs on one side, or three branches on one side, and three on the other, and um, that gives us our pattern of seven. And Yeshua, utilizing two Isaiah passages simultaneously, I believe, um, utilizing as well the Masoretic and uh, having his knowledge of the Septuagint, the Greek, uh, uses this passage to teach the audience about himself. And so it was a it was a very fun study. Hope you go back and listen to part A. But for now, let's move on to part B. And let's talk about those fascinating Bible codes. How many of you, raise your hand, be honest, um, when you hear the term Bible codes, your curiosity gets piqued. We've all seen the books. I think they were really popular um, You know, a few years back. Michael Drosnan had this book called The Bible Codes, where supposedly using a computer-rated um, software and an algorithm that was plugged into the computer, we could practice something known as equidistant letter spacing, where if you count the letters equally spaced out across a text, um, you can take these letters and put them back together, and they would spell the names of certain individuals or, or give us dates of, a, uh, of an important historic event. Ostensibly, this, um, this computer-assisted program was able to look into the future and tell us things that the Torah at the time could not have possibly known or the writers themselves could not have possibly known. And so Michael Drosnan um, started kind of a sensational buzz with the, uh, the whole Bible codes thing. Well, I, this next section of my Torah, Torah commentary is entitled Hidden Codes, and it's got a little question mark after the word codes. Are there really hidden codes in the Bible? Well, I don't want to answer just just right up front. Just let's let's go into my commentary and we'll find out. Now we were talking about the menorah. We took a menorah and we turned it topwise, where we were looking at it just directly on, where we had kind of somewhat I I guess I call it an algebraic equation, simply because it uses letters. That's not not really I suppose the best description. Maybe more like an, an alphabetic equation. We had the letter A representing our central shaft. And then we had, um, on the left and the right of the letter A, if you, we had a letter B. And then to the left and right of the B, we had a letter C. And then to the left and the right of the C, we had a letter D. If you have my written notes, just turn back to page 3 at the bottom and you'll see the little diagram. Okay? Uh, the above diagram gives us a description of the symmetry that went into the work of the menorah. And the following diagram that I'm also going to draw is going to help demonstrate what I'm about to explain concerning a mystical or a hidden meaning of the menorah patterns. We call these mystical or esoteric meanings. We call this the sod, S-O-D. According to the rabbis, there are... Sorry about that. My microphone got tangled up. According to the rabbis, there are um, 
four basic ways of interpreting the Torah. We call these the um, uh, the seven rules of Hillel. And um, within these rules that have been uh, devised, as it were, let me just turn to my Torah here. I've got a little cheat sheet in the back of my Bible. Um, is this one of the seven rules of Hillel? I don't think this is. I apologize. I, I, I was going to say this is one of the seven. I don't think this is one of the seven. This is just basically the four ways in which the um, uh, the rabbis, or maybe it's the 13 rules of Ishmael or something like that. Uh, I'm not really big into making these rules hard and fast. I think they are principles, and I think they can be utilized. I don't think that if if, if you don't follow these, these particular rules that you're not going to be able to read your Bible. That's not what I'm trying to say. Uh, thus, the term rules is, are more like guidelines. Um, they're just they're, It's just an in, inductive way of studying your Bible. And the four that they're describing, however, are the plain, or the literal, or the pashat. And then the next one was the, the hint, or the remez. Uh, what is the text hinting at? And then the next level that you could look at the Torah text was the drash, the D-R-A-S-H, or the midrash. Uh, the searching, or that which maybe it was um, a hidden there, but you had to dig it out. And then finally, they had the esoteric level, or the mystical, usually involving gematria, or concerning itself with the letters in there, and um, how they line up with one another. And this is known as the sod. And so this last one, sod, is actually where we get the English word zodiac from. I want to um, focus on this pattern. Look on the top of page four, and you'll again see those same letters, except this time I've removed the A, I've removed the B, C, and D, and replaced them with arrows. So now, looking at the top of the menorah, let's picture it this way: we've got our letter A as our central shaft, and to the left and right of the A, we have an arrow pointing in, or like a, a, a you know, a greater or less than sign, and it's pointing towards the A. And to the left and right of that, we have another arrow pointing in towards the first arrows. And then to the left and right of those, we have arrows pointing into those final sets. So we have the letter A in the middle, we have three on one side on the left, and then we have three on the other side. And all of the arrows are pointing in towards the letter A. Okay? I want to read the first three verses of our parasha in Hebrew for us, because the whole parasha, Bahalotacha, the first few pasukim, uh, concerns itself with how to set up the menorah. So let's read these pasukim, and then we'll look at the, and I'll tell you why I'm reading it in the Hebrew, um, because there's a phrase in there that is going to, uh, that we're going to have to uh, look at briefly. Uh, verse 1 says, Vayidaber Adonai el Moshe lemor. Daber el Aharon va'amarta elayv bahalotacha et hanerot el mul penei haminorah yairu shivat hanerot vayaas kein aharon el mul penei haminorah he'ela nerotecha ka'asher tziva Adonai et Moshe. End quote. That's verses 1, 2, and 3. The English is, Adonai said to Moshe, tell aharon when you set up the lamps, the seven lamps, are to cast their light forward in front of the menorah. Aharon did this. He lit its lamps so as to give light in front of the menorah, as Adonai had ordered Moshe, end quote. When you set up Beha'alotacha, 
In the opening few verses of our current parasha, we learn that the actual removable lamps, which um, rest upon each branch, they face inward toward the central shaft, just like the little diagram that I put up there, and consequently toward the center lamp as well. Now again, when we talk about lamps, we're talking about an Aladdin's type lamp with a handle on one end and a spout at the opposite end where the wick pops out, okay? And perhaps maybe even a little cap where we can pour the oil in. Basically, a, 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 a near, uh, I'm sorry, an ancient oil lamp was, was designed like this. The older lamps are still made this way, very old lamps, obviously. But that's the type of lamp, and the base of the lamp had some type of fixture that, that rested on the, uh, uh, the menorah structure on the branch, and it was, it was turnable. It could, it could turn about. You could, you could position it to the, you know, you could spin it on its base. Rashi actually confirms this, um, this arrangement in his commentary to these Pesukim, as far as the um, orientation of the lamps, that they didn't... Since, since keep in mind, all right, an Aladdin's-type lamp, if you were to hold the lamp in front of your face, you were looking at the Aladdin's lamp. You all saw Aladdin, right? You know what I'm talking about? You know, the genie and, and, and Aladdin. And the lamp is kind of like you got the... Um, or you've seen the little... Uh, picture almost a teapot, similar fashion, right? You've all seen the little children's song, where the children take one arm and they make like a little... A little um, handle on on one side. They they kind of touch their waist, make kind of like a, a a circle shape, and then they got their other hand extended out um, away from their body, and then they say, um, "I'm a little teapot, short and stout. Here is my handle. Here is my spout." Okay, the handle on one side, the spout on the other. Yes, I had an interesting childhood. So you got the handle on one side, the spout on the other. That's kind of what the little lamp is. Lo- I mean, keep Just picture that in miniature. So if that's the case, the wick is protruding out of the spout part, which means that you could, you could position the light to be in front of you, or to the side, or however you want to do it. So Rashi confirms the, um, the orientation that the, the lamps the, the, the three pairs on one side of the center and the three pairs on the other side were positioned in such a way so that the, the handles were facing out away from the center shaft and the lamps were facing in oriented towards the center lamp. Let's, let's read Rashi's commentary, all right? Quote, Our sages further expounded from here that there was a step in front of the menorah in which the Kohen stood to prepare the lamps. This is according to uh, Sifrei Beha'alotaka, number three. Toward the face of the menorah. Toward the middle lamp, which is not on one of the branches, but on the menorah itself, according to um, Menachot 98b, which is a, a quote from the Talmud, um, the, the, the menorah itself, the, uh, the middle lamp shall cast... Oh, I'm sorry... Uh, let me pick up the quote again. Towards the middle lamp, which is not on one of the branches, but on the menorah itself, shall cast their light. Uh, you know, the other branches shall cast their light. The six on the six branches, the three eastern ones, keep in mind, the lamp was on the, if you, if you were to like look at the, um, the whole structure of the Mishkan from top view, and whenever we're reading a map, north is always oriented to the top of the map. So north is on top, south is on the bottom, east is to the right, west is to the left. The menorah was put in the southern part of the holy place. 
okay and the showbread was placed in the northern part of the show of the uh, of the holy place and so because if you picture the menorah along the southern wall of this compartment of the holy place well then what rashi is trying to say is here that the six on the six branches the three eastern ones that is to say if we were looking at top view the eastern ones would be the right side if we were looking top down the three eastern ones, that is, their wicks facing toward the center one, and likewise the three western ones, again, if we're looking top view, these would be on our left now, um, the three western ones, the tops of their wicks facing toward the center one. He goes ahead and he asks questions. Why were the wicks facing inward, thus giving off so little light? Think about it. If we were to orient these lamps and turn them forward, all of them forward-facing, then the light would be thrown forward and we'd get more light out of that. So Rashi asks the question, why were the wicks facing inwards, thus giving off so little light? His answer, so that people should not say that he, God, needs the light. According to Tanhuma Beha number 5. Okay? Again, I don't. Uh, my purpose in bringing up the quote from Rashi was not to ponder all of the intricacies of his quote. I simply wanted to show you that he is also agreeing on the orientation of the lamps facing inwards towards one another, the right side and the left side giving their light towards the center lamp. That, qu that quote from Rashi, by the way, is taken from the website that I could not remember a few parashot ago. Remember I was trying to say Ra uh, Rashi is available online? It's uh, Chabad.org, C-H-A-B-A-D.org, and you can look up the commentary to Rashi easily right from the uh, homepage. Now, Rashi's opinion, however, is important as it is. His opinion is not universally shared. And so what I want to do is I want to bring in a second opinion. Typically, if I'm going to quote a rabbinic sage, um, I usually like to bring in one opinion, two opinions, and then maybe a third opinion to balance the two out. That's, that's typically what I, I'm going to do. In this case, I'm just going to bring in two. I'll bring Rashi's opinion. And then I'd like to bring in the JPS commentary to Numbers chapter 8, verses 2 and three, which of course is our parasha. JPS is Jewish Publication Society. Let's look at what they have to say. They suggest other possible ways in which to understand how the lamps themselves were positioned, okay? Because remember, the verse said at the front. That's why I read the Hebrew just a moment ago. Commenting on these passages, or on these verses, the JPS commentary reads this way, quote, speaking about in, um, what is it, verse uh 2 and verse 3. Speaking of verse 2, first of all, the phrase, speak, commenting on the phrase at the front, which the Hebrew is el mul penei. This is what the JPS has to say. Quote, if the intent is that the light should be thrown toward the central lampstand, and they reference 2 Samuel 11.15. Now from 2 Samuel 11.15, just so you know, I, you don't have to go look it up, I'll go ahead and explain it to you. In 2 Samuel 11.15, David took um, the, the he took Uriah, the um, husband of of uh, Bathsheba, and he put him in the front lines. He put him at the front of the line because he wanted to kill him. You remember he was plotting murder because he was trying to cover up his um, his his um, adulterous affair with Bathsheba. So he threw Uriah to the front line where he knew he would get killed, where the battle was hottest. And in the Second Samuel passage, the Hebrew of that passage. Um, is similar to this phrase, El Mulpanei, at the front. Put Uriah at the front. Okay. So, if the intent is that the light should be thrown toward the central lampstand at the front, 
then the pinched lips or nozzles of the lamps atop the six branches would face the lampstand. However, one would expect the text to read six, not seven lamps. Okay, let me go back and read the verse. Look at verse two. You know where it said, "Daber el aharon va'amarta elayv be'halotacha et hanerot el mupnei ha'menorah." And look at the next clause: "Ya'iru shivat hanerot, shivat hanerot, shivat seven." says when you set up the lamps, the seven lamps are to cast their light forward. At a normative reading, it seems like all seven are going forward. So the JPS is picking up on this peculiarity of the re of the rendering. It says, however, one would expect the text to read six, not seven lamps, if we were just going to have them the, the, um, the six go forward. Perhaps then the light is thrown forward in that sense northward. Remember, we're looking top top down at our map of the Mishkan. We've got north on the top, south on the bottom, east on the right, and west on the left. And the menorah occupies the southern part of the room, or the lower part in our map, which would be the uh, the southern part, it's down near the bottom of the room. And so it's casting its light forward, and according to the uh, Rashi, we already read that they are on the um, uh, that they are on the east and the west. But according to the JPS, perhaps in the light is thrown forward and extends northward toward the table. Remember I told you the table is in the north part of the room, the menorah is on the south part of the room. Um, and again, the JPS brings out that this comment, this interpretation that, that, it's, that it's postulating is supported by Exodus 25:37, where the synonymous expression, quote, al ever clearly means forward, end quote. And then commenting on um, verse 3, uh, the phrase, at the front, is repeated again. If you'll go back and look at the verse, it said in verse 2, Tell Aharon when you set up the lamps, the seven lamps are to cast their light forward in front of the menorah. Okay, again, the Hebrew is el mulpene ha menorah. And then verse 3 says, Aharon did this. He lit its lamps so as to give light in front of of the menorah, via askin aharon el mulpene ha menorah. So again, the phrase um, el mulpene is repeated twice. So the JPS takes note of this again, commenting on verse three. Quote: The fact that the idiom el mulpene is repeated indicates that the purpose of this passage is to stress the positioning of the lamps. End quote. I lifted that quote. Out of the JPS from Jacob Milgram. Look at the footnote down on the bottom of page 5. Jacob Milgram, the JPS Torah Commentary to Numbers, Jewish Publication Society, 1990, page 60. Okay. Now, I still haven't, haven't even gotten into the codes yet. That's how this, this whole commentary, or not the whole commentary, this section is entitled Bible Codes. So stick with me. Just just bear with me. I know it's 15 minutes into the commentary and I haven't said anything about the quotes. Codes. we got to talk about the, the position first before we can get into the codes. Okay. Now I personally believe, after reading these two opinions, Rashi's and the JPS, I personally believe that Rashi's description is correct here myself. However, no matter which opinion we take, surely there were six plus one lamps for us to see. That pattern is sure. We, we have no we, there's no ambiguity in the text about the pattern of the six plus one and where the six is broken down into uh, two pairs of three on each side. 
the focal point of the menorah, because of the way it's construction uh, constructed, is easily assumed to be the central supporting shaft. Now, the center shaft and the light, the you know the light that sits upon it, are known in Judaism as the shamash, coming from the Hebrew word which means servant. The the uh, central lamp is the servant lamp. In typical Judaic fashion, the servant lamp is lit first. In fact, if you've ever lit a Hanukkah, you light the the uh, the, the um the center lamp, the shamash first, and then you use that center lamp to light the other lamps. The center lamp, the the shamash, or if, and if it's a menorah where the where the shamash is on the far end, that's fine as well. It doesn't always have to be the center. It's just simply the prominent lamp or candle. It gets lit first. In fact, it's not even one of the eight candles that gets that's, that's counted uh, on the uh, first night where you light the first candle. There are actually eight candles in a in a uh, Hanukkah, nine counting the shamash, and you light the shamash, and then you use, pick up the shamash, and you light the first candle. So thus, on the first night of Hanukkah, you actually have two candles lit. And then on the remaining uh, eight, uh, seven nights, you write, because there's only eight nights to Hanukkah, right? Even though there's nine, nine, nine candles. You write the uh, light the other remaining seven. So the center lamp is the servant lamp. He is the one that's serving the other lamps. And thus, he earns the title Shamash. Now, the biblical menorah is a heavenly pattern. Moshe didn't pull this out of his head. God gave it to him. Remember, um, since it's a heavenly pattern, obviously, we should be able to gain this insight from the very fact that Hashem even had a, p a particular way in which the lamps would be to be positioned. Moshe was not just, again, making things up on his own. God is instructing him. Here's how you are to make it. Here's how they are to be positioned. The pattern of the symmetrical and equal numbers facing the, center, uh, the central servant is the pattern that I want to examine in this next section. Okay. Um, now we're going to start getting into the codes. You guys ready? The menorah consists of six lamps plus one, one servant lamp. Okay, that much is known. In the first five books of the Torah, written by Moshe, there actually is a hidden menorah. Now, when I say a hidden menorah, I simply mean, I, I, I mean the, um, the pattern where we have a center shaft surrounded by an equal number of, of, of of other shafts. It's typically an odd number for it to be what we call a true menorah pattern. It can be five, it can be seven, it could be nine. The center shaft is surrounded by an equal number of of, uh, of paired off shafts. So we have, um, in the menorah pattern, we have one plus three on one side and three on the other. Now thanks to popular selling books such as the Bible Codes by Michael Drosnan, Many of you are, are somewhat familiar with the mathematical phenomenon known as equidistant letter spacing, or ELS. Okay? It's a formula in which hidden words within the original Hebrew text are revealed using, again, a mathematical equation or a mathematical... Um, it's, it's really a, a, um, it's an algorithm that allows, I, I believe, the... Uh, uh, the, the math to manipulate the letters. Having reservations about his work, I want to make this um, disclaimer. Having reservations about his work, I do not personally endorse Mr. Drosnan's book. Mr. Drosnan, if you're listening to my commentary, 
great book. I've read it. I don't own it. I, I cheated. I went to the store. I can speed read. I went to the store, and in a, in a space of about 15 minutes or so, I slowed down my speed reading, but I still sped read it without actually buying the book. Uh, anyway, I didn't feel that too guilty. The book was, was a great read, but I just don't endorse it. Um, we come to two different conclusions at the end of the book. Uh, if you have the book, then, then fine. That's fine if you have it. I'm, I'm, not, I'm not trying to knock anyone who bought the book. However, much to the surprise of many people, there indeed does exist genuine Bible codes. Oh yes, there really are there. If I can borrow the term without confusion, that is to say, Bible codes that don't speak into the future, like you know, trying to tell me when um, President Reagan was going to be shot, or tell me when when uh, what is it they had in there when Itzhak Rabin was supposed to be shot, who his killer was. Uh, things like that. That's not the mean, That's not the term that I'm borrowing. That's where Drosnin goes in his book. But that's not where I'm going when I use the phrase Bible codes. Okay. Within the Hebrew text, there are, in fact, if we count equal distant letter spacing, there is, in fact, hidden words that will show up. This week, hang on to your hats. Get your seat belts on. I'm going to reveal one of them to you right here in this in this uh, commentary. Are you guys ready? Hope this is going to be fun for you. All right. What we're going to need to do first for this exercise, and this is going to be the first time I've done it on the audio. I mean, I've taught this where I usually like to draw this out on a board. However, this is going to be the first time that I'm going to attempt to try and do it without drawing. Those of you listening, you're just going to have to play like this. The days of old where we had the radio and where the people on the radio drew you into the drama by just but you know with the, with the sound of their voice. So I'm hopefully I'm going to try and do that for you. What we need to do first is we need to construct our menorah, all right? We're going to use the first 5 books of the Bible this way. If you're using my written commentary along with this audio, which is how I usually recommend you guys study, um, in other words, go to the website and print out the commentary. I, I typically recommend printing out the PDF version because any Hebrew or Greek fonts are going to be preserved. If you print it out straight from the email that I send you, you know, from your Hotmail or your Yahoo or your Google Mail or, or whatever email program you're receiving my, my mailer through, sometimes the fonts and the, um, the uh, formatting gets lost uh, because the HTML gets stripped and all you end up with is the plain text. So I recommend, I highly recommend going to the website, or, or you know, I, which I provide the links for in every single email. And so you print out the audio, uh, duh, print out the audio. You print out the written commentary, and then you download the audio and give it a listen while you have it in your hands. Okay, look at the top of page six. Here's our menorah. Okay, we got the book of starting from right to left. Why? Because Hebrew reads right to left. We got Genesis, space. Exodus, space, Leviticus, and the word Leviticus there is bolded. It's, the letters are bigger in, the, in size. Space, Numbers, space, Deuteronomy. So the word Genesis, Exodus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy, reading right to left, they are, I think they're probably size maybe 14 um, font, whatever. Uh, you know, 14 point. And then the word Leviticus, and all of the letters are bolded, but the word Leviticus is, I think, is like 16 points. Okay, so it's a little bigger. So in our above diagram that I just uh, described for you, the books read right to left, just like you would find them in any standard Hebrew Torah, with the book of Leviticus serving as our shamash. Okay, it's the center lamp. So we got the two pairs on either side. We got Exodus and Genesis on the right side of Leviticus. And we have Numbers and Deuteronomy on the left side of Leviticus. Now using this, the pattern. 
given to us in the first few verses of our current parasha, we're going to see how the lamps, and again, the word lamp there is in quotes, or, uh, you know, quote-unquote lamp. We're going to see how the lamps of Genesis and Exodus, as well as the numbers in Deuteronomy, actually face Leviticus. You ready? I think it's going to be fun. And it's about 30 minutes into the commentary, and with that I'm going to break it off and call it Part B. And, um... We're just going to continue after this with part C. So it looks like there'll probably be about three parts to Parashat Beha'alotacha. So stay with us for part C to Parashat Beha'alotacha.